book three chapter thirteen part one of tasker jevons the real story by may sinclair this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by expatriate in bangor maine book three his book chapter thirteen part one then i went back and told viola about it i took her into my library that had once been jevons's study where he had delivered the grand attack i gave her a letter that jevons had scribbled before lunch in the hotel at folkestone i suppose he had explained things in it but as for me or any power i had to break it to her i might just as well have told her that he was dead except that perhaps then she wouldn't have turned on me you knew this she said you knew he was going and you never told me i said i had only known it last night how could i have told her she persisted you knew at what time last night i hesitated and she drove it home you might have wired it wasn't too late i said it was and that i didn't know that she didn't know till it was too late to wire do you suppose she said if i'd known that i should be here i couldn't tell her she was so white under her wound and the shock of it i couldn't tell her that she had given me no reason to suppose that she would be with him and she went on why couldn't you have wired in the morning then i could have caught that boat because my dear girl he doesn't want you to go out it doesn't matter what he wants or thinks he wants i'm going and what's more she said you've got to take me that's all you've gained by trying to stop me i replied that nothing would induce me to take her out that i'd promised jimmy she shouldn't go she said that didn't matter jimmy'd know i couldn't keep a silly promise like that and if i wouldn't take her she'd simply go by herself i tried to explain to her very gently that her going at all was out of the question she would do no good to anybody by going she would annoy jimmy most frightfully untrained women were not wanted at the front untrained she'd got her certificate three days ago what did i suppose she had wanted it for if it wasn't to go out with jimmy if he went you knew he was going then i said i knew he wanted to go but i didn't think he'd go so soon i didn't really think he'd go at all they told me i needn't worry that he hadn't a chance who told you oh everybody the general and colonel braithwaite and charlie and bertie and reggie at least he told nora and the people at the war office and the admiralty and the embassies you went to them you went to the war office i went everywhere where he did or as near as i could get and they all told me the same thing he hadn't a chance not the ghost of a chance i really thought he hadn't when you think of the men men who can do things who are dying to go and are being kept back you were helping him to go i said i saw a vision or i tried to see it a pathetic vision of viola following poor jimmy in his pursuit of secretaries and ambassadors doing insane impossible things to help him and then i saw viola herself she was looking at me with all her features tilted in that funny way she had well no she said i wasn't exactly helping what were you doing then i'm afraid i was trying to stop him the sheer folly of it took my breath away surely i said if he hadn't the ghost of a chance it wasn't necessary well it was necessary you see he's so awfully clever he was very nearly off once or twice only we just managed to get in in time who got in in time oh it wasn't only me fernie it was all of us we were all out trying to stop him charlie and reggie and uncle billy he pulled all the ropes we couldn't do much 
But what what did General Thesiger do? He didn't do anything. He hadn't got to. He just said things. Told them about Jimmy. I don't know whether my face expressed horror or admiration. It must have been a sort of horror, for she began to excuse herself. Why not? Why should poor little Jimmy go? Because he wants to. You'd no business to stop him when he wanted to go. But that was it. He didn't want to go. He only thought he ought to go. How, I said sternly, do you know what he wanted? Because, she said, he told Uncle Billy. He kept on saying he ought to go, and we told him he oughtn't. What earthly good can Jimmy do out there with his poor little heart all dicky? He'll simply die of it. You don't suppose I'd have stopped him if I'd thought it was good for him to go, or if I'd thought he really wanted to. We told him all that. Uncle Billy and I did. We told him straight that if he tried to get out, we'd try and stop him. Oh, I said, you told him. That's a different thing. Things, Fernie, always are different to what you think them. At least they're never half so nasty. Of course we told him. And of course he laughed in our faces. We thought we had stopped him, but he slipped through our fingers. We might, she said, have known. I heard her say all that, though I wasn't listening. It comes back to me that she said it. It was dawning on me that in this queer business there were details, quite important details, that had escaped me. The war had taken up my attention to the exclusion of Viola's affairs. But it was evident that things had happened while I was away. I was thinking of something that she let out. Look here, I said. When you say you told him, do you mean that you and he have been seeing each other? Of course we've been seeing each other, until he stopped it. He said he couldn't stand the strain. And you, I said, did you stand it? She looked at me straight and hard. You've no right to ask me that, she said. Well, perhaps I didn't. And if I had owned frankly that I hadn't, all might have been well. But as it was, before I knew where we both were, we had quarreled. Yes, I quarreled with Viola, or she quarreled with me. It really doesn't matter how you put it. And it shows the awful tension we must have been living in. When I heard her say that I had no right to ask her that question, I answered that I thought I had. She said, what right? And I said if she would think a little, she would see what right. And at that she fired up, and the blaze was awful. We two were up there alone, and she had me at her mercy. She held me in the blaze. I suppose, she said, I'm to think of your everlasting meddling with my affairs. I pointed out that a charge of meddling came rather oddly from a lady who honored me by staying in my house because she preferred it to her husband's. You know perfectly well why I'm staying in your house, and if you don't, Nora does. I could have stayed with my father for that matter. I said I thought that that was extremely doubtful in the circumstances. I had her there, and she knew it, for she retired in bad order on an irrelevant point. She said I was no judge of the circumstances. I said peaceably that perhaps I wasn't, but that she must own that I had behaved as if I were. At any rate, I'd given her the benefit of the doubt. She said, you talk as if I'd been through the divorce court. Perhaps that's where you think I ought to be. The benefit of the doubt. You certainly have given it me. It's been nothing but doubt with you, Walter, ever since I knew you. You always thought awful things about me. I know you have. I could see you thinking them. You thought vile things about me and vile things about Jimmy. You came rushing out to Belgium because you thought them. And the other day you thought the same thing of me and Charlie Thesiger, 
and you came rushing after me again and giving me away and behaving so that everybody else would think me awful too my dear child you owned yourself that charlie oh charlie as if he mattered he was only being an ass the war upset him or something i don't care what you think about charlie he doesn't either but why you should go out of your way to think me awful i said i thought we'd done with that no she said we haven't done with it i want to get to the bottom of it what makes you do these things i believe you want to make out that i'm horrid just as you wanted to make out that poor little jimmy was when i went to him in bruges she went on i can understand that because i did go to him and i i cared for him and you didn't like it i can even understand your wanting me to be horrid then because it made it easier for you i had the sense to see that that was all that was the matter with you then so i didn't mind but why on earth you should keep it up like this what can it matter to you now whether i'm nice or horrid she had rushed on carried away by her own passion without seeing where she was going i don't think she had seen any more than i had that for nine years i had been living behind a screen a screen that had hidden me from myself i don't think she saw even now when she came crashing into it it was i who saw the thing was down about my ears and it wasn't the violence of its fall that terrified me it was my own nakedness i wasn't prepared to find myself morally undressed i turned away from her i began fiddling with my pens and papers i trailed long slip proofs under her eyes pretending that i had work to do but she saw through my pretenses and her voice followed me it was softer though it seemed to be pleading as if she knew nothing about me and my screen what harm did i ever do you or poor jimmy either i didn't let you marry me you ought to be grateful to jimmy at least he saved you from that i said i thought we needn't drag her husband into it and i haven't a notion what i meant i had to say something and if it sounded disagreeable so much the better and she said there i was again thinking that i had to remind her that jimmy was her husband you certainly seem to have forgotten it i said he knows how much i've forgotten with that last word she left me i tried hard to shake the horror of it off i remember i sat down to my proofs and i suppose i tried to correct them but all the time i heard viola's voice saying i can understand your wanting me to be horrid then because it made it easier for you but why on earth you should keep it up like this what can it matter to you now whether i'm nice or horrid it went on in my head till the words ceased to have any meaning i had only a dreadful sense that i should remember them to-morrow and that perhaps when to-morrow came i should know what they meant and when to-morrow came the war took up my attention again so that i actually forgot that viola had said she was going out to it she had let the subject drop abruptly she didn't even refer to it when my friend the editor of the morning standard rang me up the next day to ask me if i'd go out to belgium as their special correspondent he was charmingly frank about it he told me that it was tasker jevons he wanted and tasker jevons he had asked to go but since he couldn't get him and his powerful pen why then he'd had to fall back on me jevons he said had let him down pretty badly he'd understood from jevons that he was prepared to go for them at twelve hours notice and he'd given him twenty-four hours and he'd found that he'd gone out there two days ago chuck them my friend the editor supposed for another paper could i at twenty-three hours notice take his place i said i could and i would and i put him right about jevons and then i went to see about my motor-car 
It was when Viola began to bother me about her passport that the fight began. First of all, she asked me what I was doing about a motor car. I told her she needn't worry herself about my motor car. It wasn't any concern of hers. She grinned at that and said, all right. What she really wanted was to consult me about her passport. And when I refused to be consulted about her passport, to hear a word about her passport or about her going, she walked straight out of the house into a passing taxi that took her to the Belgian legation, where she saw that weak-minded secretary that Jevons had handled. And she came back in time for tea, very cheerful, and dressed in a sort of khaki uniform she had ordered, with a tunic and knee-breeches and puttees and a Red Cross brassard on her right arm. She said it had been a very tight squeeze, but she'd worked it down to her uniform, and it was all right. And if I'd had any difficulty with my motor people, I had had awful difficulty, but how she knew it I haven't to this day found out. Sometimes I think she'd worked that too. She knew the firm, and she wasn't Mrs. Tasker Jevons for nothing. If I'd had any difficulty, she could put that straight for me. She'd got her car, Jimmy'd ordered it for Amershot and forgotten about it, and her chauffeur, and I could go in it with her if I liked. It was a better car than the one I'd had in Belgium before, or, she said significantly, than the one I was going to take out with me. It was true that I didn't know anything about cars. Then Nora, my wife, stood up beside her sister, flagrantly partisan, and said, Couldn't I see it wasn't any use trying to stop her? She had me at every point. If I wouldn't take her, she'd go by herself with the chauffeur. And when I said, How about my promises, my word of honor? Viola laughed. Your honor's all right, Wally, she said. You're not taking me out, I'm taking you. And very early in the morning, we motored down to Folkestone to catch the midday boat for Ostend. And Nora came with us to see us off. If I'd given her the smallest encouragement, she'd have come too. I might take her, she said. It was beastly being left behind. I said, like a savage, that Belgium was no place for women. I'd take my sister-in-law there, but not my wife. I suppose the dressing down I'd got from Viola two nights before had rankled. I must have felt that I was getting my own back that time when I threw it up to her that she wasn't my wife. Nora, I said, had too much sense to want to go where she wasn't wanted. But Viola only laughed again and said, please remember that I'm taking you, not you me. And Nora wants to go as much as I do, and it isn't altogether on your account. You needn't think it. As for keeping her back, you couldn't do it if she meant to go. It's baby that's keeping her, not you. And then she thanked God she hadn't got a child. And so, sparring and chaffing by turns, half in play and half in earnest, for a secret subterranean anger smouldered still in both of us, we got off. I remember at the last moment Nora, dear little Nora, telling her that she was not to bully me. She was to let me sit in the motor car as much as I liked and she was to see that I didn't get into any danger. Danger? Danger? As the great fans of the screws churned the harbour water into foam, that the waves thinned and flattened out again, till the green lane broadened between our track and the pierhead where Nora stood, and the little slender dark blue figure became a dot on the pier, and lost itself in the crowd of dots and disappeared. Then, for the first time, it struck me that to be going off like this alone with Viola was danger in itself. Because the other night she had made me see myself as I really was, a man, not of an irreproachable rectitude, an immaculate purity, had I ever had anybody ever really suppose that I was such a man, 
but quite deplorably human and blind yes my dear viola blind as any bat and vulnerable so vulnerable that i think you might have spared me you might have had some pity i found myself addressing her like that in my heart as i walked up and down up and down the deck not looking at her but acutely aware of her where she sat in her deck-chair bundled up in her great khaki motor-coat and in the rugs i had wrapped round her i resented the power she had over me to make me aware of her at such a time or at any time for that matter here was i a special correspondent going out to the war and there on the other side of the channel was the war in the fields of france and of flanders men were fighting men were slaughtering each other every day by thousands i was a man and i should have been thinking of those men and here i was compelled against my conscience and my will to think of this woman she had come out with me against my conscience and my will and against my judgment and my good taste and my honour and my common sense against everything in me that i set most store by i hadn't meant to take her with me and she had made me take her and when my common sense told me that she hadn't that i wasn't taking her and that she had as much right to be on the ostend boat as i had i still resented her being there i still raged as i realized the power she had over me she had always had it she had had it the first day i ever saw her when she had walked into my rooms against my orders half an hour behind the time i had appointed and had made herself my secretary against my will she had had it when she used me as a stalking horse to draw her brother's suspicions away from her in jevons she had had it when she drew me after her to belgium and when i followed her from bruges to canterbury at her bidding she had had it when i married nora hadn't she told me in the insolence of it that she had meant that i should marry nora she had had it this malign power over me the other night and she had it now she always would have it it wasn't my fault i told myself if she compelled me to look at her this time as i passed her deck-chair i looked at her and she sent me a little sad interrogative smile that asked me why i walked the decks thus savagely and alone and i paid no attention to her or to her smile in the very arrogance of isolation i continued to walk the decks i meant her to see that i could be alone and savage if i liked and when i looked at her again she couldn't have made me this time for she was unaware of me lost in some profound meditation of her own when i looked at her again my anger and my resentment died with a sort of struggle and a pang she had after all the grace of her ignorance and innocence if she had had no pity on me it was because she was as blind as she had said i was she didn't she couldn't see me as she had made me see myself she didn't know that she had any power over me or else she wouldn't have used her power she was too honourable for that too chivalrous you could trust her to play the game until she threw it up and left it and i passed again in my sullen tramping and i looked at her for the third time urged by the remorse that stung me and this time she drew me so that i went over to her and sat by her i looked at my watch we had been two hours on board i had left her two hours alone and in those two hours she had suffered her face was set now in a sort of brooding fear and anguish her breathing had a tremor in it as if her heart dragged at her side it was better far better that we should quarrel than she should suffer and sit quivering in silence and see frightful things but i saw that she wasn't going to quarrel she wasn't going to pitch into me she wasn't going to assert herself and domineer over me just now this agony of hers had made her gentle 
so that she spoke to me as if she were sorry for me after all are you tired she said of tramping up and down horribly tired put my rug round you if you're going to sit still nora wouldn't let you sit still without a rug nora wouldn't let me do anything i shouldn't do she smiled down at me still sad but with the least little flicker of irony in the top of her sadness nora's job isn't very hard you don't ever want to do anything you shouldn't oh don't i no never that's the pull you have over naughty people like me you're so good it wasn't my goodness you were rubbing into me the other night never mind the other night it doesn't matter what i said the other night only what i'm saying now this minute has any importance but it was your goodness if it comes to that queer sort of goodness i was still you see a little stung all goodness she said is queer carried to that pitch but you're a dear in spite of it i won't bully you we made the last part of the crossing on the highway of the sunset the propeller lashed through crimson and fiery copper and the white wake tossed on to the highway turned to rose and gold and its edges to purple i had left her again and i called to her to look at this wonder of the sky and sea but she shook her head at me there was no need to call her she had looked i could see by her eyes that the intolerable beauty had brought jevons back to her he was there for her in all beauty and in all wonder then she called to me wally come here i want to speak to you i came you thought i was going to leave jimmy but i wasn't he knew i wasn't why the very first night i knew how impossible it was i said yes of course it was impossible and of course he knew i shan't mind if only we can get to him before anything happens i said nothing would happen and of course we should get to him she was silent so long that i was startled when she said wally your nerves aren't you are they i said no no of course they weren't i knew what she was thinking out of the intolerable beauty she had seen jimmy rise with all his gestures she heard the cracking of his knuckles and saw the jerking of his thumb and these things became tender and pathetic and dear to her as if he were dead and she had seen herself shudder at them as if it had been another woman who shuddered a strange and pitiless woman whom she hated it wouldn't matter so much if he had wanted to go she said why do you keep on saying that he didn't want to go because he said so he said he was only going because he couldn't not go i think you're doing him a great injustice he told me he wanted to go i've no doubt he did want to go just like any other man yes to be just like any other man that's what he wanted but he couldn't be he isn't like any other man and so it's worse for him can't you see that it's worse for him it'll hurt him more i said i didn't see it and that she was absurd and morbid and utterly unreasonable and that she was making jimmy out unreasonable and morbid and absurd she told me then i didn't understand either of them and we were silent as if we had quarrelled again until we came in sight of the flemish coast end of book three chapter thirteen part one recording by expatriate in bangor maine